Well, good morning, everyone. What a delight to be with you this morning. And yeah, it's been a, a week full of blessings and a week full of challenges. But first, I want to say thank you to the two ladies that did such an excellent job of planning the church picnic last week. Katrina and Amy, thank you for serving us so well. We had a great time together, and let's do it again. And if you have some other ideas in a similar way, this is a great way for us to promote fellowship one with another. So thank you. It was a great, great time together. And I thank Dr. Carl for his words, speaking just compassionately about what was going on in Uvalde, Texas. And, of course, we want to stand with them, but there's, there's a unique thing in our culture. We're, we're schizophrenic. We grieve over elementary children that get killed, and of course we should, but we don't grieve when we kill unborn children every day. And I find that schizophrenic. And if we're really to be a pro-life people, we, we are concerned about everyone from the moment of conception to the time of natural death. And so I want to invite us just to pray. Our country's at a crossroads. For 49 years, many of us have been praying and pleading with God and worshiping and ministering and asking that the day would come when the evil of Roe versus Wade would be overturned. And maybe that day is approaching. And so let's pray to that end. Father, in Jesus' name, we turn to you and we thank you that as Jesus said, let hinder not the children to come unto me. But Father, we, we do it every day. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on your church in America to continue to work and to plead and to see the, that this day of evil comes to an end. And so we pray now for those that have been appointed as Supreme Court justices in our land. Father, that they would bow the knee and recognize that ultimately they will stand before you as the supreme judge of all. And that you would work in their hearts even now bringing conviction that a wrong must be overcome. And so we pray for the end of Roe versus Wade. We pray that it would be overturned. And then, Father, that with your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen us as your church to stand in the gap and to reach out even more with more effort, with more finances, with more centers to minister to women and their children and their families as that will become a greater need that we would truly be pro-life in all that we do as your church. And we know, Father, that as the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, we can count on him to be empowering his people to do the work of Jesus Christ. But, Father, we know that we are fighting against the forces of darkness. And so we thank you that we serve a risen Christ who has overcome. And so we pray for a wave of righteousness, of repentance, of awakening to come across our land and in our church and in the church writ large in the United States. So, Father, we pray and we plead that you would hear the cries of your people and bring this atrocity to an end and then give us the courage to be ministers of reconciliation for those whose lives will be changed as a result. So we thank you that we can trust you. And by faith we say thank you for bringing that day. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This week I received a mailing from the Caring for Women Center, and I just want to bring it to your attention. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come, but as part of the response to what we think is going to happen with the Supreme Court, and even if it doesn't go our way, we're still going to follow through, and it's, it's a movement that has started called Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn. And I'm going to be having a petition made available in the church office that we're going to, as many as can, to sign this petition. We'll send it off to this organization. And then for all of those who sign these petitions around Oroville, we will be, they'll be accumulated and a presentation will be made to the city council of Oroville to have our city declared a sanctuary city for the unborn. It's a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual struggle that is to come. But it's always right to do right. It's always right to stand for righteousness. And so you can be looking for that. Now, to sign the petition, you do need to be a citizen, not a citizen, a resident of the city of Oroville. You have to be within the city limits. So the, many of us that were included in that, some of us are not. We're residents of the county. But if you are a resident of the city of Oroville, you can sign this petition. It will be made available in the church office starting this week, and with the, with the elders and, and Pastor Brian, we'll try to get them circulated and get them to this organization. But just something of coming attractions. And today we have to say goodbye. Chelsea and Joshua have been with us for a long time. Chelsea, of course, grew up in this church, but the Lord has led them in a new direction, and they're starting a new business in life in Montana. And today is your last day with us. So thank you for serving with us and being with us all these years. We send you out with our love and prayers. And if you get a chance, give them a greeting and a blessing before you leave today. Uh, we send them off knowing that they are loved by this, their home church. Well, why don't we take some time to get into the word of God. And I thank you for the privilege that we have each week of, of gathering around the authority of God's word. So to that, we want to turn our attention. Toward the end of the 4th century B.C. and the beginning of the 3rd century, there was a famous architect by the name of Sostratos. And the king or the pharaoh of Egypt used him in order to build the famous beacon light in the city of Alexandria, which is a, one of the great cities of the ancient world. And in fact, it still is a great city with a great port, a great place of commerce in North Africa. The king's purpose in building this beacon light was so that ships would find their way safely into the port. And when the building was being completed, the architect Sostratos chiseled his own name on a stone that was part of the building. But he didn't want it to be readily visible because after all, he was serving the king. So he covered it up with mud and with whitewash and then put gold lettering of the king and then it was placed on the lighthouse. But he also knew that because of where he had placed it, it would be hit by the waves of the sea and that the waves would eventually wash away the name of the king and it would be his name that would appear. He wanted to give the impression that he was actually doing his work for the honor of the king. But his actions showed that what he really wanted was the attention to go to him. It's a reminder that deep within the human heart is the desire to be recognized. The desire to even be praised. And it was that sin of pride that drove us out of the garden, out of the holy presence of God. But that void that was left, we still seek to fill. But unfortunately, we seek to fill them all too often with other sinful and mischievous ways. 
We know there is a God in whom we should seek to serve. We should do our religious activities in such a way that they are being done for him. But all too often we find this struggle going on within our own hearts of wanting to draw attention to us even as we're doing them. And we're reminded by Alexander Solzhenitsyn that the battle for good and evil goes right down the middle of every human heart. That each of us engages in this struggle because we desire that we might get a pinch of the glory that belongs to God. Oh, we're willing to give him the majority, but we kind of like to be recognized a little bit, and so we might try to steal a little bit for ourselves. And so the passage that we look at today will remind us of the true nature of the true practice of righteousness, the true nature of giving. And that is giving glory to the one to whom all glory is due. And in doing so, we might reflect his generous nature, even as we show our generosity of having been touched by his grace. Well, as we continue in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, today we will read Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. And in honor of God and his holy word, I invite you to stand for the reading of his word. And the lovely... The powerful word of God it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let us pray. Fathers, we've read your word. We're reminded that it is your word and that we need to be listening. So would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you banish all distracting thoughts that we might be able to focus on you and your beauty revealed through your word? And Father, that our hearts would be stirred, that our minds would be challenged, that our wills would be shaken, that our hands would be activated as we recognize that we have been in your presence this morning. So lead us, Father, for your honor and your glory. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, for those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks mainly in chapter 5. But today there's a shift in the focus as we move into chapter 6. We will see that Jesus is changing a little bit the focus of this sermon, having spent a lot of time talking about the right interpretation of the Old Testament law, of how the intent and the goal and the purpose of the law was to point people to Jesus Christ, having taught us what it is to live as salt and light, having told us that we will be persecuted if we live for Christ, he wants us to see that this righteousness that he has brought in, that far surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, is what qualifies us for heaven. But moved by that righteousness, renewed by the Spirit of God, we will be a people living in the kingdom of heaven who not only love the commandments of Jesus, but will want to obey them. But now the attitude begins to shift. The focus begins to shift a little bit from the, the heart of the matter to the proper practice of righteousness. What does this new life look like? And over the next several chapters, which will encompass most of chapter 6, Jesus is going to talk about three main ideas. 
what is proper praying, what is proper fasting, what is proper giving. He understands that as we talk about the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart, as the heart is changed, it will show in how we spend time with God and how we focus on who we are versus who he is and his greatness and how we will actually use what he has given to us for his honor and glory. And so these three things become a sort of a compass that reveal the direction that our heart is taking. And in each of these points, Jesus will not say if you do these things. He will say when you do these things, which is already a challenge to us as we contemplate what it means to be a disciple and follower of Christ. And so may the Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look at how these things work together, not only this morning in this short passage that we're looking at, but as we look at how they unfold together in chapter 6 of the Gospel according to Matthew. Which brings us to our first major point this morning, which is the wrongful practice of righteousness. And you'll notice in your, ser- in your bulletin you have a sermon outline that you can follow to take notes that perhaps help you study more during the week to reflect upon what the Word of God is saying. And let me give a greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Thank you for being with us. And we trust you that you're sitting there at home with your Bibles open as we are here. And we invite you to join us as we study God's Word together. Well, Jesus has just finished Matthew chapter 5 by saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The disciples are to pattern their lives after the character and the actions of God. And we saw that in this challenge that we were given that we were to be as perfect as God is perfect, we saw that this was a command, a promise, and a process. It's a command because we clearly are told to be like God. We clearly are told to be perfect as he is perfect. We're to be imitators of God as Paul wrote the church in Ephesus. But it's also a promise because the whole point is to help us to realize that this is not something we can do in our own strength. It must be done in a strength that is outside of us, a strength that is alien to us. It must be the strength of the Lord this new righteousness that he has given us. And so it's a promise because God finishes what he starts. For as Paul wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 8, verse 29, he has predestined those that are in Christ to become like Christ. So what God starts, he will finish because that is his goal. And then it's a process because step by step as we obey him, as we do what he commands, as we love him, as we allow him to work in and through us, we will actually become more holy in our behavior, in our words, in our attitudes, in our actions. And that's what we call sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ, of becoming holy. And so if we're called, therefore, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, well, how perfect is God? Well, of course, he's perfect in all ways. The immediate context is he's perfect in his love. And we saw that last week. He's perfect in his love because even as we are commanded to love our enemies, we see that it is God who is continually loving his enemies, providing for them, watching over them, guiding them, even as they, more often than not, detest him, turn away from him, and do not turn to him. And so as we begin chapter 6, keeping in mind, of course, that these chapter divisions were added long after, so they're a little bit arbitrary. But as we continue in chapter 6, the context is one of loving our enemies and being like God. God, the one who loves lavishly, who loves continually, who who loves generously, who loves consistently, calls us then to 
love him and love others in a similar manner. And one of the ways that we show love is in giving. God loves, God gives because it is good to love and to give. And now he calls us to do the same. Love and give because they're the right things to do. But he continues to challenge our hearts, which is what he's doing all throughout this sermon. Because he teaches that his people, his, his children, his Christians, his disciples will do the right things for the right reasons. And we need to remember that the challenge that we have when Christ calls us to follow him, it is not a one and done decision and it is not a just me and Jesus proposition. He calls us to join him and to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the family of God. And so while it is true that our Christian faith is a personal matter, it is not, strictly speaking, a private matter. Otherwise said, your Christian faith, your walk with the Lord is personal, but it is never private. It is always to be lived out before a watching world. It is always to be lived out before God. The Christian life is an active life. It is a life that interacts with others, that goes towards others, that affects others, that teaches others, that speaks to others, that serves others. And we are called then as we let our light shine and as we are salt of the earth to live out publicly who we are as the family of God. Both the family of God writ large, but also as individual members of that. There is no such thing in the Bible anywhere of a Lone Ranger Christian. But the challenge we have in this, on the one hand, is that we know that we're supposed to obey the Lord. We know we're to live out our faith. But on the other hand, we also know we still struggle with sin and selfishness in our own heart. We still want a piece of the pie. We still want a piece of the glory, even though the adoration and attention is to go to God. And so, first of all, it's good for us to recognize that tension. But then we do ask the logical question, to be seen or not to be seen? Our text says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now the word for righteousness here just simply means that the moral standards that we see, the moral practices that are actually lived out. That's what the word is referring to. It's faith in action, faith being applied. And then we remember, remember that Jesus said, unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's at that point we say, but I can't do it. And Jesus says, that's right. I've done it. Come to me and be complete in me. But now he's warning us. He's just talked about what the right type of righteousness is, how it reveals the human heart, how it gives the full and right intention of the law. Now he's warning against the wrong type of righteousness. So he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before people. The phrase could be translated, take care not to parade your works before others. Give careful attention, Jesus says, to doing the right things for the right reasons. We recognize the temptation in our hearts. To try to get others to notice what it is that we're doing. But it's at this point that we might ask the question, do we show our good works or do we not? Because after all, in chapter 5, 16, as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Now here in Matthew 6, 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now on the surface, it looks like Jesus is wanting his cake and eating it too. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. So what gives? What is he doing here? And I think we see that Jesus is drawing attention to the spirit that is behind all of the actions that we perform. And we see it in the difference in the situations that are being addressed. If we go back to 5.16, what is the immediate context? Jesus has said, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and falsely say all things against you because of my name. For great is your reward in heaven. And in that context, he says, be the salt and light and let your light shine. Let your works be seen. Even if there is persecution, let them see your good works. Do not hide out, which would be the temptation that we would have right at that point. But Jesus says, no, even if they persecute you, let your light shine that they might see your good works, the ones who persecute you, and rejoice. If you're trying to live a righteous life for Christ and you experience persecution, rejoice. That's how they treated the prophets. That's how they treated Christ. He already promised that's how they will treat us. But here in Matthew 6, Jesus begins to talk about, well, what does ongoing, regular service and worship to the Lord look like? And now he's saying, don't do the works of faith simply so that others might see them. Don't do them so that others might think a little better of you or that you can add something to your own PR team. And so I think wisdom is required here. And what the, the Bible teacher A.B. Bruce says, I think nails it. He says, show when tempted to hide, hide when tempted to show. And that battle that goes on in the human heart is why we need the wisdom of God so that we know when it is appropriate and when it is not. So that the tension and the glory and the focus is all being given to God. So the question then is really, who are you trying to please? If you want to please men, Jesus says, you have your reward already. There's nothing left to receive. But if you want to please God, you might even get a reward now. But certainly there will be rewards later. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon and his wife raised chickens. And as the story is told, they would sell but refuse to give away all the eggs that the chickens produced. Even among close family members and relatives, they said, you may have them if you pay for them. And as a result, they were criticized and often co considered greedy and just wanting to have personal gain. They endured a great deal of criticism over their behavior. They accepted that criticism without ever trying to defend themselves. And it was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died, she was a widow for many years after Charles died, it was only after she died that the full story was revealed. All of the profits from the sale of the eggs went to support two elderly widows that they knew and were taken care of. Because the Spurgeons were unwilling to let their left hand know what the right hand was doing, doing their works in secret, they endured their attacks in secret. One commentator, as he's reflecting on it, I think nailed it, and it, it, it's something that strikes us deeply that we have to even ponder ourselves, why do we do what we do? But he said, we'd all like a reputation for generosity, and we'd all like to buy it cheap. Which leads us to the next point then. 
be seen or not to be seen, the proper motive is the key. Beware, Jesus said, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So in Matthew 5, 16, if people kept their religious activity quiet, it was to avoid persecution. In chapter 6, verse 1, they wanted to call attention to themselves by the religious activity for personal gain. The difference is the motivation. Now, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to obey. We're called to be disciples. We're called to follow Christ. That means that as we do that, it will not always be possible to not be seen doing something good. So go ahead and do those good things anyway. But again, we just remember that we do those good things for the right reasons. It's not wrong to give to the poor. It's not wrong even if you can't avoid it to be seen giving to the poor. What is wrong is to give to the poor in order to be seen by others. And I think we all understand the difference in our hearts. And we just need wisdom to guide us that we would be generous, but generous in a way that is honoring to the Lord. There's a, a new phrase that has come up in contemporary lingo of the past, I would say, decade among evangelicals, and it's called the humble brag. The humble brag. It, it shows up in expressions like this. Well, the Lord used me to reach a thousand people for Christ. Or pray for me, and this is one that I saw or was made aware of just a couple weeks ago. Pray for me as I preach to 30,000 college students today. Or we raise thousands of dollars to help such and such mission in such and such a country. There's a balance there about how we present what it is that God is doing and to whom we draw the attention. We must beware, even as we talk about the good things that God is doing, that ultimately the attention and the glory goes to God. Because otherwise, we fall into the trap of the hypocrite. And as Nia Carson says, the hypocrite trades the goal of pleasing the Father for the goal of pleasing men. That battle that goes down the middle of each one of our hearts is a reminder then that it is possible to be, to be good at doing certain things in Christian service. It is possible even to do them in such a way that they impress other people and then miss the whole point for doing them. Because we know the deception that can lurk in the human heart. So my friends, if we aim to build up our own reputation, we may achieve it, but it may gain us nothing before the Lord. But if we work to build up the reputation of God and to point people to God and talk about how wonderful God is and what God is doing, that is the type of giving, that is the type of service that Jesus is calling his people to. The great St. Augustine, I think, captures well what was said here in Matthew 6. He said, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness. If you were to take a quiz this morning between you and the Lord, and the Lord were to say, in what do you truly find your contentment? What would be your first answer? What would be your second answer? What would be your third answer? The calling that we have, as Jesus teaches us about giving, is seek to please the Lord and not men. Beware the wrongful practice of righteousness. Far better is our second major point this morning, the rightful practice of righteousness. 
And so Jesus begins this verse by saying, thus, when you give to the needy. Now, the, the emphasis here is on the word you, which in this case is not plural, it's singular. It's talking about me, it's talking about you, it's talking about when you give to the needy. And notice that the word if is not there, it's when you give to the needy. It is an expected practice of God's people. And that carries over from what we saw of the people of God in the Old Testament. Where there were a number of commands that talked about giving to the poor, taking care of the widow, the orphan, the aliens that were living among them. Giving to the poor was a necessary part of life. Because so many people were so poor. And it was the same in the day of Jesus. Many people lived an agrarian lifestyle. They were dependent upon what they could grow from the earth. If it was a difficult year, that meant the family was going to be in a difficult situation. And so it was necessary then that there be some type of way of helping one another to get through year by year to make sure that everyone was provided for. In fact, such was the need and such were the commandments that many commentators say that by the time of the first century, there was actually a well-organized system for taking care of the poor in the temple and in the synagogues. They managed the money. They made sure that the people that were part of their congregation, if you will, were taken care of. The synagogue would have been the center of all life, really. Religious, cultural life, political life, economic life. And that's where the important administrative functions were performed. And so members would give to the synagogue with money earmarked to take care of the needs among the needy. That's why in this church we have a deacon's fund. We recognize that we need to carry that on to help those that are in need, that maybe the needs we, uh, are not known by many, but they're known by some, and how we can work to take care of each other. But during the time of Jesus, yes, you could give officially in the synagogue or in the temple, but you could also give directly to the poor. And so you can imagine the dynamic that this would, be, this would set up as people would walk down the street looking for those to whom they could give the money. You can imagine how the motives were all over the place and could be easily compromised in such a situation when the giving is public and obvious and maybe ostentatious. So as Jesus brought in the gospel, as he brought in the kingdom of heaven, he would certainly do what the law required because he said he came to fulfill all righteousness. But he'd also do more. And as his spirit has been at work in the church since the beginning of the New Testament church, it has been the practice of Christians to be those who give to the poor, who give to the needy, who help the widow, who help the orphan, who help the alien, who help the stranger. Because it is expected that Christians who have received so much from a generous God would be those who will show the impact of the gospel on their own lives. And thankfully in the history of the church, it has been Christians who have been at the forefront of providing relief and comfort to slaves, to the poor, to widows, to orphans. Just thinking in our own country of the number of soup kitchens and rescue missions and, and sh short-term housing situations and rehab centers and women's shelters and women's resource centers that have been started and funded and operated by the church. It has been the church that have been the main contributors and participants because they understand what Jesus is saying. It hasn't been those that oppose the gospel who have been doing this work by and large. It hasn't been those who say, well, let the government do it. It is God's people who have done it because the ones who have received mercy 
are the ones who would be expected to show mercy to others, but to do so in an appropriate way that honors the Lord. So in this rightful practice of righteousness, one should not say, hey, look at me. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Don't blast the trumpet, Jesus says. Now, it's not known that this actually ever happened, where people would actually blast the trumpets and have these long parades as they're getting ready to drop the coins in the coffer and and give the offering. But we get the idea of what Jesus is saying. He certainly is speaking clearly, saying, basically, we would say today, don't toot your own horn. Unlike the hypocrites. The word hypocrites is a Greek word that actually just refers to an actor. What does an actor do? An actor puts on a mask. An actor puts on a role. An actor puts on a pretend presentation that may or may not be real in his own life. Applied to the spiritual life, hypocrites like to be seen doing what is good and helpful, but it's more a show, not necessarily based on anything sincere, because they want to improve their own reputation. But they're focusing on the wrong thing. You see, if you Paul even warned the church in Corinth to say, if we compare ourselves with ourselves, we are not wise. Because there's only one with whom we really can compare ourselves, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we compare ourselves to him, we all fall down. And we all need the mercy and grace of Christ. So we don't abuse the grace of God. It says, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want. When I want. After all, it's my stuff. We don't use grace as an excuse to sin or to justify behavior. No, we allow grace to empower us and transform us. So that we're not drawing attention to ourselves and what we're doing. And notice, as you see on the screen, the phrase here, to be praised by others. What's interesting, it's from the Greek word doxadzo. It means to give glory. And what's interesting is, it is the exact same word that is used in Matthew 5.16. Where men who are persecuting Christians will see the good works that Christians are doing and will give glory to God. But here... In Matthew 6, chapter 2, Jesus is warning about doing our good works that the glory would go to the doer of the good works. You see that? It's the exact same word. What Jesus is saying that is that the performance of good works will receive the praise of men. But who will be the recipient of that praise? Who will be the one that will have be the attention of that praise? And of course, we know what Jesus is telling us is the right answer. But living in a world that we live in with the emphasis on PR campaigns and on polishing up your resume and of having marketing departments and of having putting your best foot forward and everybody having a Facebook profile that oftentimes looks nothing like our daily lives, it can be very easy to buy the glory of men. Think of what happens as a regular practice in our own culture. Somebody donates money to a school and we... Name a building after him or her. Or somebody gives a certain amount to a charity and they get a plaque with their name on it. Or they get their name engraved in a brick that's put in a wall. Now, in and of themselves, these things can be okay. But the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. 
why are these awards and certificates being given and how do we respond if in fact we happen to be a recipient of one of them. So we make sure that the glory goes to men. Because the real challenge we all face is to focus the glory on the Lord. That's a challenge that I experience as a pastor, elders experience, anyone who's been in Christian ministry, anybody who's in type, any type of situation, whether they're involved in the Lord's work. It's the challenge is that we need to promote God's work without promoting ourselves. And you can see the challenge that we have and why we need to watch over one another and encourage one another so that ultimately... It's just the praise of God that's on our lips for all that is taking place. Because there is the mention of reward here. And that reward is often used in the context of commercial transactions. It was the giving of a receipt for money that was given. Or a copy of a paycheck for work that had been done and for which wages were due. And so the challenge then becomes don't look for recognition while we are serving the Lord. Encourage one another to lift our eyes up to be focusing on the one to whom all glory is due. Because if we simply settle a, a strive for rewards here, that's all there is. The late Percy Ross was a successful businessman. He was raised a poor immigrant in the United States. He made his fortune being a junk dealer and the producer of plastic trash bags and plastic film. And as he got older and as he accumulated a great deal of wealth, he said, I want to try to give it all away before I, I die. That sounds well and good. Except that he also said, I want to make sure that there's a camera around whenever I do and that my name was always on the gift. And so for 17 years, Percy Ross had a newspaper column entitled, Thanks a Million, where he would read letters that he would receive from people who were asking him for money, giving their sob stories, and he would tell of what he did to help the people in those situations. He loved publicity. He said, I also like getting a personal thank you. But even then, he, he carefully stored and, and kept the videotapes of every public giveaway and every television show in which he appeared. Perhaps the the climax, if you will, of his generosity was in 1977 when he had a famous Christmas giveaway in the city of Minneapolis. He gave away 1,050 bicycles to poor children along with other toys and prizes and gave a silver dollar to each one. And for that, he was widely praised by many, even getting a personal phone call from Hubert Humphrey, who was then the vice president of the United States. And while he was generous, he wanted others to know about it. Sorry, he was the former vice president. He wanted everyone to know about it, Percy Ross. Not one of his gifts was ever anonymous. He said this, I don't like anonymous givers. I think you should let the word out. When asked why he made things so public, he spurned the idea of getting a reward later, saying, I want my reward now. I want to see the smiles. I want to receive the thanks. I want to see the happiness. And I remember watching him on an interview, and I was not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. And I remember him even mocking the words that, that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6. Not directly, but saying, I don't want my reward later. I want it now. And it, something inside me struck me as, as wrong. And it was a, a couple years later when, when the Lord called me to himself and saved me by his, by his grace, I began to understand why. Because our God is a lavish 
generous, consistent, abundant giver. But all the glory is to go to him alone. Now, it's rare that we will find people as audacious as Percy Ross, who always wants to have the camera rolling, who always wants to have the attention given. But the question that we do need to ask ourselves as we look at what Jesus says this morning is, whose applause do we desire? Do we desire the applause of men more than the applause of God? With the praise of men, there's nothing left to give, uh, nothing left to get. Rather, I think Jesus would have us ask the question, what am I doing? But when you give to the needy, he said, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. True Christian service is generous, it's lavish, it's sacrificial, but it doesn't seek attention. Jesus says, let your giving be done in such a manner that it's secretive, that it's circumspect. He uses the analogy of not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, as if somehow that were even possible. But the metaphorical meaning is this. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't praise yourself for what you've done. Beware of the humble brag. Give, serve, love, and move on. Let the motivation be that God will be given all the glory. Now, in the full counsel of God, we are told to recognize the good works of others. We are told to praise and honor those who serve well the Lord. So how does that work together? Well, if there is to be any praise that comes from what we do, from the lips of men, we do well to listen to Proverbs 27, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Give in a manner that is generous but circumspect, that is lavish but secretive. And then Jesus says, as you do that, you will get the Father's reward. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So, aim to give and serve and help in such a way that no one else knows about it. Because the fact remains, someone else does know about it. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And God is the one who matters. And he sees what is given, and he's able to give a reward. It's the attitude that's important here. Jesus is not advocating some type of cheap give-in-order-to-get scheme, some type of false prosperity gospel. No, Jesus is saying that we're to give because God has already given to us. And that's what biblical giving is. It is responding with generosity because we have already generously received from the Lord. Not done with the view of getting a reward, but doing it because we want God to be honored and glorified. And then if we remember this, that God himself is our reward, it makes the giving all that much sweeter. Moses went on a great, uh, not Moses, Abraham went on a great trip, rescued his nephew, rescued all the family, came back, is surrounded by all the booty and bounty of the, of the conflict, and God appears to him and says, I am your shield, I am your great reward. Are we able to say that? As we gather the bounty and booty of our hard work and our hard labor, are we able to say, yes, Lord, you alone are my treasure, you alone are my reward. And if he is, 
open-handed, open-hearted giving becomes a way of life. In this short passage, Jesus is contrasting the proper practice of faith with the improper practice of the same. He's concerned about proper obedience, about the proper motives, the motives that reveal what's in the heart. And what is our ultimate goal as we give, as we serve, as we love, as we forgive? But if God is truly our reward, then we will serve him, we will serve others with great love, with great generosity, because it's just so good to serve such a good God. Now this is the first of three disciplines that Jesus is going to address here in Matthew chapter 6. Next week, we'll begin to look at the idea of prayer, and it's so important. We're going to take a few weeks because Jesus has so much to say. But in the meantime, what are some lessons that, I, that God would have us learn from what we've seen today about the whole nature of giving? Well, number one is the Father is generous to us, so we will be generous in giving to others. How can we not, like father, like son, as we're becoming more like him, like his heart, like his character, like who he is, as he blesses, he invites us to be blessings to others. And the challenge, while we do live out our Christian life before others, as we are called to do, our primary motivation is to live joyfully under the watching eye of God. You know what it is to be at peace with God? It is to sense his smile upon your life. Because you're living in such a way that you're pleasing and honoring to him. Aim to live in his power with the smile of God upon your life. As your primary motivation for what you do. Thirdly, because God is to be glorified in all that we do. In our giving, we will seek the praise of God or the applause of God. Or the applause of men. And even if we do receive applause, we quickly deflect it so that it, it goes back to the Lord as the one who is ultimately the giver of all. And lastly, knowing that God himself is our reward, we will give joyfully to others and let God decide about the rewards that we receive. When we have an audience of one, and we seek to please that audience of one, we're very happy and content to receive the blessings that come from that audience of one, finding that they will far surpass anything that we could hope or imagine. Let us pray. Father, in your word, you would have us to walk joyfully on this journey of life. Not because every step along the way is easy, but because you're with us at every step along the way. And we thank you that the reminder you give us is that as you have been generous to us, so we are to be generous to others. And Father, may we do it out of not just obedience, out of loving obedience to you, out of joyful obedience to what you want to do in and through us so that you get more glory as other lives are touched and impacted by your grace. But Father, our hearts need to be put right. And so would you do the work that only you can do to continue to align our hearts rightly with your word, in tune with your spirit, that we might walk in a way that's honoring to you. And this week, Father, would you give us a hunger and a thirst to walk under your smile. 
that we'd be pleasing in your sight and a blessing to those around us. For that, and we pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.